Welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolias First. For more information, visit www.magnoliasfirst.org. We are continuing in our series, When God Walked Among Us, and we are looking at that brief season in human history when God incarnate, God in human form, in the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walked on planet earth which he created. And we're looking in John's gospel in chapter 6 through 9 during these weeks, and we're seeing what Jesus did and what he said and uh, the miracles that he performed and the truth that he taught. Uh, And last week we looked at John chapter 7, And we saw not only that Jesus presented the truth that he is the living water, and I'll uh, expound on that in just a a few moments in the message, but we also saw that throughout John chapter 7, Jesus was, as we titled last week's message, Encountering Opposition. But then we come to chapter 8, and we find that that opposition just intensifies. Uh, Let me begin by asking you a question. Have you ever encountered a no-win situation? Uh, A a no-win situation. Let me me try to uh, explain or illustrate that. Uh, Maybe when you were a kid and you went to dinner at Aunt Martha's house, whoever your Aunt Martha was in your family, and uh, you had the choice between Brussels sprouts and hominy. To me... That wouldn't be a no-win situation. I like hominy. Some of you are saying you like Brussels sprouts. But uh, whatever, Uh, a no-win situation, two foods that you don't like. Or how about this? Back when you were in high school, some of uh, the folks over in the Resonate service are still in high school, and you're, you're facing the choice of filling out your math requirements, and your only two available classes are advanced calculus or trigonometry. Now, for a no-math person like me, that's a no-win situation. Maybe you're a math whiz and you like both of those. That's pretty strange, too. But how about this one? This, this has got to grab all of you. How about if you're at your doctor's office and he comes into that little exam room with a big hypodermic needle and his question is, would you like this shot in your arm or your hip? That's a no. Are you guys out there this morning? Are you you grimacing or grunting out there? Uh, That's a no-win situation to me. Two choices, neither one of them is good, but you have to choose one, a no-win situation. Well, in our passage today, Jesus' enemies try to entrap him in a no-win situation. And our story today from John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, will not only tell us something about Jesus. If you're a Christ follower, it will tell you something about you. And so the big idea that I'm going to seek to unpack throughout the message is this. How you treat sinners reveals who is in control of your heart. How you treat sinners reveals who is in control of your heart. And so before we look at the story of a, of a sinner, maybe we ought to think about, well, what does the Bible define as a sinner? Uh, not 
somebody's opinion or not uh, uh, somebody's idea, but what does the Bible say about who is a, a, a sinner? So here's my shot at a biblical definition from the Bible of what a sinner is. Quote, anyone who has broken even one of God's laws as in, and is in need of grace. Is there anybody here in this room besides me that that fits? All of you should be raising your hand. How about at home, online? You can raise your hand there at home. Yeah, anyone who has broken even one of God's laws and is in need of grace is a sinner. But, but kind of the, the point of this story is we can tend to think of other people as sinners, some other individual or some other group of people as sinners and not really ourselves. Let me, let me just share with you some of the common suspects in our culture that we as Christ followers could think of their sinners perhaps in need of judgment. How about this? In a, in a time of uh, social unrest and even rioting and uh, immigration controversy, maybe we think of people of other ethnicities or cultures whose behavior we don't approve. We think of them as sinners in need of judgment. Or how about this one in an election season? People with whom we disagree on politics or ideology. In the early service, I said, you might think of people in the other party from you as sinners. And somebody over here said, yeah, they're sinners. Listen, well, let me just go on. How about this group? People who live or behave in unbiblical ways because they don't know Christ as Savior. In a culture that has pretty much discarded the Scripture as the standard of morality and replaced it with popular opinion, people who live in unbiblical ways because they don't know Christ. We could think of them as sinners. Or let's make it more personal. How about people who have acted toward us in ways that have wounded us, that have hurt us, and we think of them as a sinner worthy of God's judgment? The point is, it's so easy to think of other people as sinners more than we understand that we are sinners. That's what the Pharisees did. As a matter of fact, for the Pharisees, anybody who wasn't in their little group, they thought of as a sinner. And in the story today, they pick out one particular woman to mark as a sinner, and they seek to use her as a weapon to attack Jesus. So jump into the text with me. If you have your Bibles, open them to John chapter 8. And uh, if you don't happen to have a copy of the scripture with you, we'll provide the, the text on the screen. John chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. Now, you know if you were with us last week, 
that Jesus had taught the people that he was the living water. The context last week was the, the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Festival of Shelters as it's translated in the New Living. And, and as a part of that Jewish religious celebration, it climaxed with a, a time of worship in the temple and water was poured upon the altar and the Levites would sing from the Old Testament scripture as the water was being poured. And Jesus had stood before the people and taught them that he was the fulfillment of what that represented. He was the living water. And the people were enraptured with the teaching of Jesus. Well, our, our story today takes place the very next day. And Jesus has returned to the temple. And he is teaching again. And people are listening with intense fascination. Verse 3. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, I think it's important for us to understand the, the Jewish context and mindset of what they were accusing this woman of. Uh, in our continually secularized culture, uh, adultery has been trivialized or, or, or even uh, validated in, in some people's mind. It's just no big deal anymore. Not so with the Jews. In fact, to the Jews, adultery was a crime, not only a crime, a crime worthy of capital punishment, the death sentence. And so as we think about that, there's a couple of questions that come to mind immediately. The first question is, where's the man? Where's the man in this? And the second is, how was it they actually caught her, quote, in the act of adultery? Did they go from house to house looking for a, a transgressor of the Jewish law? of Deuteronomy 22, 22. Look at that verse on the screen from the Old Testament. If a man is discovered committing adultery, both he and the woman must die. In this way, you will purge Israel of such evil. Now, we understand that the Old Testament law was a symbolic historical picture of the judgment and righteous justice of God. And that in our era of grace, the Bible is not teaching us to, to enact the penalties of the Mosaic law on transgressors. Aren't we glad? But here is the law, and it says both the man and the woman. Why isn't the man in front of Jesus as well? Well, I think it, it's really pretty obvious this thing was a setup. The Pharisees had orchestrated it all. And when they grabbed the woman to, to take her in front of Jesus, they released the man because I believe he was a co-conspirator in this whole drama. And so they throw the woman down in front of Jesus. They challenge him with this indictment for her sin and they pull the trigger on the trap 
the no-win situation. They were seeking to entrap Jesus. Verse 5, the law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. This was Jesus' no-win situation. That if Jesus said that she should be released, he would seem to be contradicting the Mosaic law and he would seem to be condoning adultery. But if he said you should stone her, he would be violating Roman law for the Jews under Roman rule did not have the legal right to enact capital punishment on someone and he would be violating his message of love, grace, and mercy that the people had heard him teach. They thought they had Jesus caught in a no-win situation. But then Jesus did something that nobody expected, and it changed everything. Look at the last part of verse 6. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. (laughs) I can just imagine the Pharisees standing there frustrated, looking at each other, dumbfounded, wondering, what in the world is going on? What is he writing in the dust? And so they relaunched their attack upon Jesus, no doubt with more volume and more intensity. And yet Jesus, I believe, just responded with a calm voice and went back to writing in the dust. See it in verse 7. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. What was he writing in the dust? Well, we're not told specifically in Scripture, but I do think there's a clue here. Greek scholars have told us that the word translated here in verse 6 and again in verse 8 as wrote in the New Living, the common word for wrote would have been grapho in the Greek. But the word used here is an expansion of that word. It's katagrapho, and the the word there in the Greek can be translated, listen, quote, to write down a record against someone. And Greek scholars and Bible teachers throughout the centuries have, have hypothesized that what Jesus was writing was indeed a record against someone, that it was actually the sins of the Pharisees. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there that day to hear the, the stones dropped with a thud and to see the look on the Pharisees' faces as they looked down to see what Jesus had written in the dust, and quite possibly it was those very sins they thought no one knew about. Verse 9. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. 
Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? This is such a powerful lesson, but don't miss this. The lesson that day was not just for the Pharisees. It was for us. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, this lesson is for us, that it is not our right or our privilege to condemn others for their sins while we are forgetting our own. Jesus called it in Matthew chapter 7, trying to get the speck out of somebody else's eye when we have a log in our own eye. And I suspect what happened that day was Jesus whacked the Pharisees upside the head with the logs of their sin. And when he did, they could not condemn the woman for her sin. And so Jesus said, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? Verse 11. No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Now, I think it's very important for us to understand what Jesus was saying and what he was not saying, what he was doing and what he was not doing. So follow me on this. Jesus was not saying that she was not guilty. I mean, that really wasn't even in debate. She was indeed guilty. Jesus was also not condoning adultery. Jesus was not saying, oh, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. Everybody's doing it. Don't worry about it. He was not condoning adultery. What Jesus was saying and what Jesus was doing was pointing her to a new life, a new life of forgiveness, a new life of grace, a new life of walking with him. See, we sing about grace and we talk about grace a lot, but here's something very important to understand. Grace is not a license to sin. It is a call to freedom and to godliness. And so we see in this story Jesus' model of how to confront someone who is caught in sin. And by the way, sometimes we are in a situation in which we must confront others who are caught in sin. Now, let me clarify something. Most of the people that we know about, all of the people perhaps in the groups that I named earlier in the message, and even that last group where I said those who who have wounded us somehow, most of the time it is not our responsibility, it's not our job, it's not our business to confront other people in their sin. Most of the time it is not God's direction for us to be that agent of confrontation. Most of the time, what we ought to do is simply to love them in spite of their sin and to pray for them. Are you with me? To love them in spite of their sin and to pray for them. But sometimes there are people in our lives, maybe our closest friends, 
or maybe our family members, and they are caught in some kind of sin that is wreaking havoc in their life and perhaps in the lives of others around them, and we are called upon by God to confront them in their sin. And so in that delicate, difficult situation, how are we to do that? It was true in the early church, and the apostle Paul gave instructions to the early believers in the, the Galatian church, and we see it in Galatians 6.1. He said, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful. Be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. In our story today, we have the model of Jesus, and we see that Jesus' purpose was not to judge and condemn, but to forgive and restore. And so when we are called upon to confront someone in sin, if we're going to be serious about being a Christ follower, if we're serious about following the example of Jesus, then we must love people as Jesus loved people. We must treat people as Jesus treated people. Even those that we might think of as sinners. And when we are called upon to confront, I think there's some important lessons we've got we must take away from today's passage. So let me call these life lessons from John chapter 8. Two or three of them real quickly. Number one, when we're called on to confront sin in others' lives, it demands humility, not pride and arrogance. If the truth is told, almost all of us, if not all of us, would rather not have to confront anybody. Can I get an Amen. We'd rather just mind our own business. But, but sometimes, if we really love those people and if we're walking with God, it falls to us to do that. And so when that happens, it demands humility. The humility of Jesus, not the pride and arrogance of the Pharisees. And, and, and tied right to that is the second one. The goal of confrontation must always be forgiveness and reconciliation, not judgment and punishment. If we enter into that kind of interaction with the, the idea that, that we're going to set them straight and give them what they deserve, that's the Pharisees' mindset. Our goal must be forgiveness and reconciliation for those who are caught in sin. Well, one more. What about if, if you do what God leads you to do and you follow the, the pattern of Galatians 6 and you try to, to model Jesus' example to us in that you, you try to, with God's help, do everything right, but it doesn't go well. They don't respond with with repentance. They don't respond with godly sorrow. Then what do you do? When confrontation does not result in sorrow and true repentance, our response must be humility, but also tough love and prayer. Now, follow me on this. 
If you speak the truth in love, if you seek to be redemptive, if you seek to be Jesus, if you do everything right with God's help you know to do in this kind of intervention or confrontation and they don't respond well but they persist in their sin, your next step, listen, is not to enable them to continue to sin and not suffer the consequences. Your next step is to allow them to experience the consequences of their sin, not to make them more comfortable in their sin. Your response then must be humility and intense prayer because sometimes the consequences of their sin may be the very thing God will eventually use to bring them back to him. And we must be wise as well as loving. So what, I want, what do I want you to do with the, the truth from today's story? A couple of things quickly and we're done. Number one, look first at your own sin and thank God for his grace. The best antidote for me against pride and arrogance is to remember I'm just a sinner saved by grace. A sinner saved by grace. And except for his grace, I could be as guilty of any sin of any of those groups that I talked about or anybody else if not for grace. Number two, I encourage you to ask God to give you his heart for the other sinners around you. Can I just be honest enough to tell you that it, it grieves me deeply when I see Christian people who become angry at sinners around them and judgmental against sinners around them. It's not hard to find sinners, folks, and we begin by looking in the mirror. We must love people, even if they are in sin. And if we're serious about being Christ followers, we learn from this story and from the, the woman at the well and from Zacchaeus, the corrupt tax collector, and the parable of the Good Samaritan and on and on in Jesus' ministry. We are not to judge people but to love them. And that's pretty important because how you treat sinners reveals who's in control of your heart. Let's pray. Our Father, we realize that we live in a sin-filled, corrupt culture. But Lord, we also realize that we too are sinners and that we cannot focus on the sin of others and not be mindful of our own and to remember that only by the grace of God are we forgiven only by the cross of Jesus and his blood shed for us are we forgiven and without that grace we would be as condemned as any other sinner so help us Lord to learn how to treat other sinners like Jesus treated the woman that day and not to be proud or arrogant like the Pharisees thank you for the word of God that teaches us and helps us to live more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much, everybody. Have a great week.